Romans chapter 1, my friends, and we're looking this morning from verse 8 through to verse 10. Let's hear God's Word. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, speaking personally, I find that I, I rarely pray like the Apostle Paul prays. Uh, Paul, of course, had uh, many impressive and admirable qualities. He was an impressive person. But foremost among them is his commitment to, uh, I think, and practice of prayer. When you read his biography and get a sense of who he is from Acts and his letters as well, you find that he is as dedicated to praying as he was to preaching, as passionate about petition as he was about action, as devoted to intercession as he was to strategy, as enthusiastic about giving thanks to God as he was writing letters to correct the errors of God's people. Paul was... Um, Perhaps a shrewd businessman. You can see that with his tent-making enterprise. Uh, Paul had uh, culture and learning. You can see that with his familiarity with philosophy and theology. He was uh, a sophisticated person. But if I had to name one thing, above all, that we today could learn from the Apostle Paul, it would not be his intellect nor his business smarts, nor even his strategic, missional thinking. It would be his praying, first of all. Uh, that, at any rate, seems to be how Paul thought about it. He starts by saying, first, or first of all. It's a phrase that suggests that he's beginning uh, a list that will thereafter follow with uh, other less important matters in descending numerical order, first, second, third, so on. And Paul never completes that list. It's just first and no other uh, along the bullets, bullets uh, that go down. And people have wondered why. Some scholars think it's because Paul was so carried along by the rhetoric as he dictated this letter, as we think was his habit. And he just sort of forgot to say second afterwards. Others think it was Paul's way of emphasizing the supreme priority of the matter under discussion. Uh, foremost, he says, first, number one. You see, some principles are so important that to follow on with uh, second, third, and list other subsequent priorities, which aren't the number one, actually detracts from the priority, what is prior, number one. I mean, think about it with me. Uh, uh, no, no man here, a man does not say to his, uh, say about his wife, you know, first, I must love my wife. Second, I must mow my lawn. It sort of detracts from what's number one, doesn't it? 
And so here, first of all, prayer. Or to be more accurate, and this is an important distinction to understanding how we're meant to move beyond pointless prayer to find the point in the gospel of God. Not, not first of all prayer, but first of all God. He, he doesn't say, you know, um, first of all, let me talk to you about prayer. I've got a wonderful lecture about prayer coming out now. He doesn't do that. He says, first, I thank God. First, God. Now, that's an important distinction. Obviously, this is a prayer. But it's an important distinction, isn't it? Because you and I have both uh, experienced from time to time prayer teaching or teaching about how to pray that can actually, if we're frank, become mechanical, manipulative, human-centered, and really has little to do with God at all. This is not prayer. It's a slot machine. You know, put the prayer in and out comes the answer. Or prayer is magic. Say precisely the right words, the right intonation, and like Aladdin rubbing his lamp, out will come the genie and he will do your bidding. Sometimes when you listen to teaching about prayer, you wonder whether that's what they're really thinking. No, this is not prayer that, uh, you know, you think you'll be heard because of your many words, as Jesus puts it. This is first thanking God. First God. Now, of course, when we begin with God, we inevitably will begin with prayer, for prayer is the necessary overflow of a saved person with a renewed heart for God. And there are many quotations about this that you can find, aren't there? I hope one person say that what we are on our knees before God is what we are, neither more nor less. And, and, and that is, of course, true, isn't it? That our gratitude to God, our thankfulness for God, is the inevitable result of truly sensing the beauty and excellencies of Christ. You can't really know who Jesus is and not be filled with joy at some level really sense his beauty. However, if this is true, if, as I've also heard it said, prayer is as natural to a Christian as breathing to a living human being, if that's true, why do I find, and perhaps you too, prayer so hard? I, I don't usually find breathing hard. Here I am. Prayer is tough. Why do I find prayer meetings such a struggle? Perhaps you do too. Or put it like this, why do we rarely pray like the Apostle Paul prayed? I think it's because we need to understand the point of prayer, and that's how to move beyond pointless prayer. And that's what Paul is modeling for us. The, the, the point of prayer comes out of the gospel of God, the melodic line of this whole book, that then reshapes the prayer of the apostle as a model for those to whom he is writing. You see, in ancient letters, let me just give a little bit of the context, it, it was standard to begin with, you know, a prayer and good wishes for the recipient of the letter. You know, I hope you're doing well, I pray for you. And we do much the same sort of thing today, don't we? We pray before meals someone's having a tough time, we express we care for them by saying, you know, I'm thinking of you and sending prayers your way. And it was the same sort of thing then in letters. You would constantly come across it if you read through ancient letters. But Paul then transforms that standard pattern 
Under all, underneath the overall melodic line of the gospel of God, that's what this letter is about, he models prayer shaped by the gospel. He takes that standard prayer, that pointless prayer, and points to God through his gospel. Meaningless prayer becomes meaningful. Superficial prayer becomes profound. A-theological, that is non-theological prayer. And by the way, theology isn't sort of something effete and learned. You can't really talk about God without doing theology. Theological prayer, that is who God is, we're talking to him. He reshapes it, models it for us, all out of the point of prayer underneath the gospel of God that shapes that prayer. He refocuses us upon that focal point with two adjustments in our vision of prayer. First, here they are. Move beyond pointless prayer. Let's give you, give you the heading. This is from verse 8. The heading, which I'm going to analyze it for us, so we're going to look at it together. Move behind, beyond pointless prayer by global exuberant gratitude for proclamation. That may sound a little bit of a mouthful, but I'll break it down for us. Now, bear with me. I'm looking at three verses this morning. It's a real struggle. So we'll do our best to fit it in. Verse 8 reads like this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That is global, exuberant gratitude for proclamation. Let me break it down. One, it is global, not parochial. Not just not in my backyard kind of thing. Global, not just here. Global, not parochial. So look at it. Paul doesn't say, I thank my God that your faith is proclaimed down the street by Aunt Jane. That would be fine, but that's not what he says, is it? Oh, I thank my God that, you know, a couple of people over there have heard about your faith. Paul says, I thank my God that your faith is proclaimed in all the world. See, this is what was going on at the time. Let me just explain it to you. Because there were Christians in Rome, the whole of the Roman world was bubbling with excitement. Certainly not every single person in the world, certainly not every corner of the actual globe, certainly not those not yet Christians as much as those who already become Christians had faith now in Christ. But nonetheless, the news that even in Rome, in the capital city, there was now a large and thriving church, well, that infused every part of the world where there were believers. And so Paul there was on his travels and People who knew about the faith of the Romans would come up to him and they'd tell him about it. They'd be excited about it and they'd tell everyone else they could find all about it. Anyone who would listen. Have you heard about what's going on in Rome? It would be like us hearing that there was a large and thriving church in Mecca. That news would spread. We would hear about it all over the world. Now you say, what does that mean? What it means is that if we want our prayer to move towards the point of prayer that comes out of the gospel of God and is shaped by that, we need to embrace a global view of God and therefore God's church. This is one reason why College Church has such a commitment to global mission. Massive commitment to global mission we have here. If you're just getting to know the church, it's something to find out. It really is quite extraordinary. Now, of course, we also need to reach our neighbors in, right here in Wheaton, in the Chicagoland area. We need to do that. And we need to be missional in that sense. We need to be missionary as well as missional. 
But if we want to continue to gather up a real excitement and gratitude for God and who He is that bubbles over into our prayer life, having a global vision of God and what He is doing will certainly help. See, our God is not a tribal deity of the suburbs of Chicago. He is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, ruler of the universe. This global adjustment to the vision will certainly motivate prayer because it shows us the point. Well, two, Paul's prayer here is also exuberant. Not just global, but exuberant, not perfunctory. That is not going through the motions. Actually, this whole paragraph is packed with energy and enthusiasm. One commentator, Christopher Ash, it's a very helpful commentary, one of the more recent ones, uh, he says this, this section is full of verbs expressing emotion and desire. What it certainly is, first is a commitment, number one, but then it overflows into passion. Paul's passionate when he says that he serves God in his spirit, verse 9, in his spirit, that is in the deepest level of his being. Then he says he always prays for them, always, verse 10. And then he says he longs to see them, verse 11. This is emotion, the language of feeling. Of course, we can manipulate people's emotions with uh, songs that get us excited but don't really say very much, or, or preaching that can do that. You know the kind of preaching. You're laughing one moment, <laughs> and then you're crying. And then you're laughing again, and you come out and you think, what was that about? And the answer is not very much. And of course, that can be dangerous, can't it? Because the consequence of that for poor believers is that they become disappointed, and they start floating around from church to church looking for solid joy. So we don't want to do that. On the other hand... We can also ignore people's emotions. We are emotional people, even British. (laughs) And to ignore the emotional aspect of life, it can leave us disengaged and looking outside of Christ for a thrill. Well, the answer is right here, isn't it? Have a wholehearted, affectional, in my spirit, deepest level of my being, sense of God himself through Jesus as our God. Notice how Paul talks about God. He is my God. Douglas Moo says that this may reflect the language of the Psalms. That's why we had the Psalms, partly why we had the Psalms read earlier in the service. The Psalms, too, are passionate for God. Well, let me just be very direct with you. I am as scared of cold orthodoxy in some ways. They have different problems. But I am as as scared of cold orthodoxy as, in a different way, of hot heresy. Why? Because cold orthodoxy will, in the normal course of events, lead to hot heresy. Because humans desire excitement, exuberance, exaltation. They're going to look for it. Well, God is the highest high. He is the greatest thrill. He is the one who turned the murderer, Saul, to the Apostle Paul. When you encounter him, he thrills you. Here's exuberant prayer, therefore, because this is who God is. Not just going through the motions, not perfunctory. 
And then look down also again at verse 8, and you'll see that prayer is obviously a thanksgiving, but it's a thanksgiving for a proclamation, not prosperity. So he talks about what's being proclaimed. And he doesn't say, I thank my God that uh, you are now over your sickness. He doesn't say, I thank my God the economy is now doing better. Th- th- those could be fine things to say. Or that I thank my God that you've passed your test or that uh, you've now got that job. Again, that's fine. But Paul's focus, the focal point, is on their faith, not their prosperity. Proclamation, not prosperity. Chris Austin, the great ancient preacher, said this, it was their faith, not their verbal disputations, uh, nor their questionings, nor their syllogisms, which he remarked upon. Now, we could put it rather more straightforwardly like this. It was their faith, not their fancy urban lifestyle, for which Paul was grateful. He didn't say, I'm so grateful for you Romans. You're living in a wonderful place. Isn't it exciting to be in Rome? No, I'm thankful for your faith. Now, if we're to move beyond pointless prayer and grasp the point of the gospel of God, we need to thank God for that gospel. To give thanks for faith in Christ, for spiritual victories, for baptisms. Now, you and I know that it's always a tendency, isn't it, in prayer meetings to spend most of the time praying for each other's problems. We share our problems and Sometimes we find we've hardly got any time left to pray after we've gone through the whole list. <laughs> now, well, we all have problems, and there's nothing wrong in sharing our burdens and asking for prayer for them. That's a good thing. It's part of what's being wonderful about being in church. But such prayer, if it's really the emphasis of our prayer, this is what will happen. In the end, it will begin to seem, well, depressing, even petty. On the other hand, when we give thanks for faith, for the proclamation of the word, for conversions, for spiritual growth, for baptisms, then we begin to move towards the kind of prayer life that Paul here models that is shaped by the gospel of God. Now, such God-centered thanksgiving, global, exuberant for the proclamation of the faith, moves us beyond pointless prayer to the point of the gospel of God. Now, this week I read an article in the Huffington Post, an online magazine. It describes how people of my generation, the so-called Generation Y, born around 1970 or so and thereafter, tend to have an overinflated view of their potential for achievement and therefore find it rather difficult to be happy with the reality of their actual lives. It's fascinating reading. The solution, the article said, was to stop comparing ourselves with our peers. You know, so-and-so's got this car, so-and-so has this house or this degree, yeah, I'm not doing so well. Stop doing that. Stop comparing yourself like that, the article said. Now, I want to go one big step further. Let us compare ourselves to what we were like before we were a Christian. To our fate then, with our destiny now. Thank God for faith that saves you. Not just yours, ours, not just ours, but all over the world. Changes everything once we begin to thank in this sort of way. Have you heard the story of uh, the person who came to a rabbi in Budapest and he asked the rabbi this? It's a rabbi story, so you get ready. He asked the rabbi this Life is unbearable. There are nine of us living in one room. What can I do? He said to the rabbi. And the rabbi replied, Take your goats with you into the room. 
The man protested, but it was the rabbi, so he did it as he was advised. A little bit later, he came back, and uh, he returns looking worse than ever. What's happened? The rabbi says, well, we cannot stand it. The man says, the goat is filthy. So the rabbi then tells him, well, go home, let the goat out, and uh, come back in a week's time. A week later, this time, the man comes up beaming, radiant, happy. Oh, life is beautiful, he says. We enjoy every minute of it now. There's no goat, only the nine of us. Now imagine if we not only took the goat out, but put God in by the gospel and began to sense the beauty of Christ. And so our prayer life will begin to be transformed. It's an indicator, isn't it, of who we believe God is, our prayers. Well, second, uh, we're looking now at verses 9 to 10. We've gone verse 8. This is now verses 9 to 10. Let me read it for us. For God is my witness, whom I serve. This, this is, uh, we're moving beyond pointless prayer by ceaseless submissive petition for success. That's the title. I break it down for us. Verses 9 and 10. They read like this. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. The gospel of his Son, that just means the gospel whose subject is his Son, namely Jesus. Whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, ceaseless, I mention you always in my prayers, petition, asking, again petition, that somehow by God's will, submissive, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. We need to break down that word succeed to understand it in context. Now, Paul here is modeling then the ceaseless submissive petition success. Number one, it is ceaseless, not, the opposite of ceaseless is intermittent. Ceaseless, not intermittent. That's what it means here in this context here when Paul uses that phrase. So what does Paul mean when he says he prays without ceasing and always in his prayers, he's asking? What he means is not that he spent his whole life in a prayer meeting, nor does Paul mean that he was so supernaturally gifted that though he was active in other ways, at the same time he was also constantly praying verbally in his mind for the Romans and all the other Christians for whom he also said he prayed without ceasing. Now, ceaseless prayer is simply the opposite of intermittent prayer. What Paul means is that in his regular prayer times, probably following the Jewish custom that was typical of praying three times a day, you can find that in Daniel in the Old Testament, his regular prayer times, and in an attitude of prayer throughout the day, he never stopped praying for them. So they're not on his, only on his prayer list, they're on his heart. They're not on his prayer list, he actually prayed for them. Now, you see, when we look at praying like this, ceaseless prayer, we realize it doesn't require becoming a monk <laughs> or attaining the stature of a spiritual giant and is well within the reach of mere mortals like you and me. Nonetheless, to pray like this, ceasing, without ceasing, not intermittently, nonetheless does require one thing. It requires discipline. If we do not plan to pray... We are planning not to pray. Now, perhaps you're listening there thinking, okay, I need to really get my prayer life in order. I need to start. I've never really done much of this before. Well, if you're just starting to pray, here's how you do it. Find a piece of paper, perhaps the back of the worship folder this morning. 
And write on the top of it the days of the week, from Monday to Sunday. Underneath each, write a heading for church, family, friends, outreach, something like that. And underneath each heading, list topics which need your prayer focus. When such matters are no longer needing prayer, cross them off your list. Put that list in your Bible. Read the Bible first. Pray for what you've learned in the Bible. You've, you've been, look, we've been looking at praying. Lord Jesus, help me to pray. You're praying it in. And then pray your prayer list. You'll probably need to do it in the morning, I'm afraid. Early in the morning is usually best. Uh, I, I like the quote from John Bunyan. He said, He who runs from God in the morning is unlikely to find him the rest of the day. Too true. But it doesn't have to be in a special closet or something. It could be on the train, on the treadmill. Squeeze out the 10 to 15 minutes it will take. Perhaps you've been praying for many years and you're, again, you're thinking, I need to reinvigorate my prayer life after this sermon. You're wondering how to do that. Well, really, it goes back to the first point about thanksgiving, doesn't it? Keep a track of how God answers your prayers. Might be yes, might be no, might be wait. But thank Him for those prayers that are answered. Tennyson said famously, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. It's too true. But if we're not awake to the answered prayer, we may miss the dream coming true. And so reinvigorate your prayer by keeping track of God's answers to your prayers. Ceaseless, not intermittent prayer. Focuses on the point of the gospel of God, as does also to submissive, not presumptuous prayer in God's will. Now, I'm going to need to spend a little longer on this because here we're touching upon a mystery whose solution is infinite and eternal and uh, troubles the minds of the tenderest consciences as well as the greatest thinkers and every Christian who's thought about the matter. And the path of wisdom is to worship here, not declare easy answers. The issue is this. If God is sovereign, why pray? If it's God's will, why do I pray? Well, one answer is straightforward. If God is not sovereign, why pray? Well, that's certainly true. And you'll see here that Paul evidence is that kind of delicate balance of divine sovereignty and human responsibility in relation to prayer. He's praying without ceasing, uh, always asking that somehow... And yet at the same time, by God's will. So notice here how this biblical author and the other biblical authors think about the interrelation of divine sovereignty and human responsibility because their ways of thinking about that is seldom the same as ours. Evidently, for Paul, knowing that the answer to his prayers is only by the will of God, does not, at the same time, stop him from praying with fervor, energy, commitment, and devotion. How do we put that together? Over the summer, I read an essay by C.S. Lewis that was reflecting on this. It was really quite profound. Uh, Lewis, to his audience, described how in Scripture he thought there were two modes of praying. He said there is the by-God's-will mode, And then there is the importunate prayer of the widow, asking, seeking, knocking, praying in faith, knowing that that God will answer. 
So he poses this question to the audience. How do you know which mode to adopt at any particular moment? Should we adopt the it's by God's will, the garden of Gethsemane mode? Or the prayer in faith will make the sick person well mode? Now, the account does not record the subsequent discussion between him and his audience at the, uh, in, uh, at the seminary where he gave the talk. But with that in mind, those two modes, will you again notice how Paul, however, interweaves both modes in the same couple of verses? It is by God's will, and yet he's urgently asking. John Murray, who's always very profound on these kind of things, outlines the balance or tension apparent in these words with six, uh, six uh, reflections. Number six says this, The importunity of request, I'm quoting from him, is not incompatible with uncertainty as to the final outcome and the ordained providence of God. Well, that's a helpful nuanced statement to describe the apostle's mind here. He's praying passionately and depending on God's will. And Murray is brilliant as ever in, in, in these areas. But at the same time, it leaves unanswered the inevitable question that I want to ask of this kind of example of the interweaving of God's providence and importunate, desperate prayer. Namely, why? Why is it not incompatible to pray passionately and leave it also according to God's will? I can see it's not, but why? How do we answer that? Well, my answer to that question is, I think, in some ways simple, but in other ways profound. At least I found it helpful, and others I've shared it with have too. Perhaps you will as well. The first time I was asked this question was by a 12-year-old who had just put his faith in Christ a few days before. He came up to me and he said, look, Josh, if, okay, so God is in charge of everything, why then do I pray? Perhaps you've had that question. The answer, I think, is revealed by the way that Paul talks to God here. He says, I thank my God. It's so easy, isn't it, for you and I to begin to think of God's will as like the will of fate or force. Star Wars-like. For we're talking of a person. In particular, we're talking of a person who is, if you are a Christian, your God. See, the answer is that God loves for you to talk to Him. God could get it all done without you praying, no doubt. Probably He does quite a lot of the time. Heaven does not need our prayers any more than heaven needs our preaching. But heaven uses our prayers and our preaching because God loves us, wants us, wants to know us, and is my and your, if you're in Christ, your God. Look at it like this, and I'm just being very frank, really. God, if you like, has set up the system whereby he ordains events to take place in answer to prayer according to his will because he knows us well enough to realize that he did not, we would be unlikely to talk to him so much. He's like a father who wants to be asked by his son or daughter for something. Oftentimes the father can spot what his child needs. 
Sometimes he'll step in and provide it anyway, but he loves to be asked. I'm afraid you and I, in our own natural selves, converted, if you are in Christ, but this side of glory are still too selfish, I think, and practical in an earthly sense to be left to only talk to God now about heavenly things. We have burdens, financial issues. Maybe travel problems like the Apostle Paul here. And if God hadn't set up a system, didn't set up a system whereby us praying about it would make any difference, I doubt you and I would pray to him half so much. He's like a father who gives a child a travel ticket to downtown Chicago to see the bulls so that he can ride along the train with him and spend time with him. And if it was up to him, his own preference, he would have happily gone to see the White Sox instead. But... But the conversation began at the point of need, and relationship develops out of it, and that's the point, God. And so we begin to move to the point of the gospel of God and relating to Him as save people, my and your God, if you're in Christ. Well, the the last... uh, here, number three, is petition for success, and the opposite of that, of course, is failure. Petition for success, not failure. So look at the end of verse 10 with me, if you will. Paul there is saying that he's asking that somehow, he's asking, somehow by God's will, that's the balance, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It's a very interesting word there. Paul's obviously playing for his uh, travel plans, but succeed Uh, He wants the Roman Christians to understand that uh, he wants to be with them and that he's been delayed, and he he really, not because he is ignoring them, he really wants to be there. So at last, finally, he would succeed. And that word succeed is interesting because it has a broader meaning than simply travel plans, though it is about travel plans here. In 3 John 2, we read, I pray that all may go well, same word as here, with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well, same word again, with your soul. So Paul wanted it to go well with him so that he could succeed in his travel plans to visit Rome. You see again the balance of Paul when it comes to pray. He's demonstrated thanksgiving for their faith, not mundane or, or unspiritual uh, emphasis. Uh, all under God is spiritual, but about gospel priorities, a focus upon proclamation, he, he's done that. And now he also demonstrates a sort of down-to-earth, practical prayer for successful travel and going well according to what he took to be his plans and hoped would be God's plan as well under God's will. I find that so encouraging. You see, if... If even an apostle's prayers were not immediately answered, you and I can take comfort from that, not be discouraged if our prayers encounter some kind of delayed response. Sometimes I think we feel that uh, the more spiritual we become, the quicker will be the answer to our prayers. I'm not at all sure that's the case. Perhaps the more spiritual we're able to cope with Delayed answers that give room for further growth in character? It's the young infant who can't wait. Be encouraged then if you've been praying for practical success in some area. Maybe even a a travel plan. Maybe a ministry development. 
maybe for a spouse, if you're single and you long to be married, maybe for a child. And the answer is delayed. It appears perhaps to be wait. Notice how passionate Paul remains, how ardent, how joyful. Why? Because it's about God. He communes with him. And yet he longs very practically that it would go well in this area, and yet he waits. It's so encouraging, isn't it? What's even more encouraging, I find, is if even an apostle's prayers were in the end answered how his were, well, you and I should not be surprised if when the answer is yes, the answer appears different than we had imagined it might be. Paul did go to Rome, but in a prison ship. Hardly the glorious entry the apostle expected as he wrote this letter in 57 AD about his prayers longing to visit them. When you think. So, yeah, we can be practical. We can be honest with our desires that it may go well. And then be not surprised when the answer, even if it is yes, appears different than we had anticipated on, on a divine time scale, not the just-in-time, lean delivery mechanism we have grown to expect in our modern Amazon delivery world. Paul may have wanted to be in Rome now, but perhaps Paul was not ready for Rome yet. Or perhaps Rome was not ready for Paul. And so we see such petition that is ceaseless yet submissive. For success, yet success is defined by God, not by us. It moves us to the point of prayer. We, we become a little more like Jacob. Of course, Jacob in his story had many things that are less admirable. But in this regard, like Jacob in the Old Testament, we begin to wrestle with God. And not just with prayer. You see, human-centered praying is boring, isn't it? God is thrilling. And therefore we pray. Sometimes people say it's impossible to make an extrovert excited about prayer. Nonsense. It is impossible to make an extrovert excited about human-centered prayer, yes, any more than it's uh, possible to make an extrovert excited about sitting in a room on their own talking to themselves. It's not what extroverts do. If anyone was an extrovert, I suspect uh, Winston Churchill was, at least in some regard. He may have had different and very complicated elements of his character too, but it reminds me of Churchill, this, because, see, Churchill was famous for his love of words, wasn't he? Often witty. One quotation uh, uh, from him that I found in a collection of mine of his quotations is this. Mr. Baldwin, one of his opponents, he, he said once, Mr. Baldwin used to be wiser than he is now. In those days, he used frequently to take my advice. <laughs> but as uh, one of uh, Churchill's biographers said, while we may readily imagine Churchill preaching, it's hard to imagine him praying. Now, if we understand prayer as human-centered, orientated around our problems and 
sending prayers to each other through the ether or force. And we may gather a few introverts for a prayer meeting or people who like to share their problems or, or maybe a few people with a real passion for prayer in a godly way despite our sort of cultural misunderstanding of the essentially God-centered nature of true prayer. Despite that, but we will not gather an apostle-like prayer that is global, not parochial, exuberant, not perfunctory and just going through the motions, proclamation of faith, not prosperity, giving thanks for that faith, petition ceaselessly yet submissively for success, as God defines success. Now, that kind of prayer comes from understanding the point of prayer which is not prayer, but God. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we bow before you. First, we thank our God through Jesus Christ. We take a moment to pray for those here for whom they cannot yet say that you are their God. We pray that by your Spirit you would give them the gift of faith. That in a, just a few weeks' time, perhaps or so, we will be celebrating yet more baptisms. And for those of us who know you, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you for our faith that saves us. Jesus, you save us through our faith. We thank you for this gift of grace, which we share with fellow believers all over the world. Our hearts are filled with gratitude for you. And in that spirit, we, in the deepest part of our being, with our spirits, we ask that you would help us to have this same commitment to prayer as the apostles. To be able to say, for God is my witness. And to be able to say, not just I will be praying for you, but to mean it and to be able to say, yeah, as the Lord knows, I am praying for you. To do so without ceasing, to, that is not intermittently, to have the appropriate discipline. Father, would you help us to wrestle with you in terms of the things that we want to say, thy will, your will be done. And yet at the same time say, asking that somehow we may now at last see this particular progress for your glory in a certain area of our life or in someone's life who is particularly dear to us. Would you help us to talk to you as our Lord God? And so to worship you, to be transformed by you, and to give you thanks. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.